Hello and welcome to 100% Real with Ruby. Today I have Gab Fundero on and we went deep into gut health. We bust quite a few myths in this one and it's split into two episodes. So in the one you'll be hearing next week, we actually go a little bit more into how your mindset and your perception of food and stress in itself can impact your gut health and create issues down the road. If this is something that you enjoy, please, please share it with someone who needs to hear it, who wants to know about gut health. And don't forget to click through to my podcast and give it a five-star review. And I hope you enjoy it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's a really a lot of emerging evidence now that psychological stress has an impact on GI uh, or, or is associated with GI symptoms, um, yeah, and vice versa too. You know, there's a, one of my favorite studies. I've referenced this more than once. I just think it's so interesting, um, and and I don't want to invalidate anyone's experience or anything like that. And I'm not like a toxic positivity, like oh, just what you make of it. You know, mindset's everything. But this really pointed to the influence of thought patterns and perception on GI symptoms. So they, um, in this study, they recruited people who had IBS and they told them either that they were going to get a placebo. They said they were, they were like, this group, you're getting a placebo. Sometimes placebos help people feel better. And the other group, they said, you could be getting a placebo or you could be getting peppermint oil. Peppermint oil has been shown to reduce abdominal pain. And sometimes people feel better when they get a placebo. The trick was everyone got a placebo. Some people just thought that they could be getting peppermint oil or a placebo. The people who got a placebo and were told it was a placebo still felt better by the end of the trial. Like everyone improved because they either thought, okay, a placebo can help me feel better. And I believe that. And so I feel better. Or they thought, well, I think peppermint oil could help me feel better. And I could be getting peppermint oil. So I think that I'll feel better. And it was just really incredible to see that, you know, compared to the controls, like just the people that like went about their day. Yeah. And so it was like, wow, you know, just the, just the belief that like this could potentially help me feel better. And that really does agree with other research that's that's found an association between psychological stress and worsening symptoms. And I've even found, you know, with the clients that I've worked with, as I've helped them um, learn more about the way their GI tract works, learn more about um, the way that food can cause GI distress, learn what foods are high in FODMAPs and feel more prepared that even if they do have, you know, some a, a, a rough GI tract day, that they tend to not feel as much anxiety or stress about it. They're kind of like, okay, I know what's going on. I know it's going to get better. Doesn't seem to last as long, you know. So it's like it, IBS, like other chronic diseases, it's a it's something that you manage. And I think that a lot of that, like, there's so much to be said for feeling empowered and that you have autonomy and that you have some agency and that you know what you can do to help yourself feel better knowing that there's no cure and knowing that it's unpredictable that that still goes a long way and so so to your point about you know the food fear that there is potential there for someone to just believe that whatever they're they're going to eat this and then they're going to feel bad that they will then feel bad and it could be that they really are feeling bad 
Or it could be that something else made them feel bad, but they're associating it still with that food and then they've missed that it's actually this other thing that made them feel bad. Um, so I, I agree, it's really important, you know, that we help people um, become like feel put food in a more neutral place of just like knowledge. I want to I want to also emphasize in the house stress because there is the stress of stressing about the food, stressing about oh my god, weight, fat gain, whatever the hell, how that can cause digestive distress and eating in a stressed state isn't actually going to help your digestion, which is then why you feel bloated and then you get gassy and then you're just putting these symptoms onto yourself because of the state that you're eating the food. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. And um, and then when people are eating really, really restrictive diets long term, that it's possible that when they start to reintroduce foods, they're going to have some GI distress in response to those foods, just because they might be increasing their fiber intake. And, you know, we have to adapt to fiber intake and that can take days or weeks. But then because they're so anxious about it and because they have so many, food, you know, they've only been eating like five foods. It's like insurmountable to think that they have to reintroduce all of these foods. And they're like, you know, it's the same reason that people eat carnivore. They're like, well, I just feel better. It's like, I don't care. They, it, you know, it's the, it's acknowledging that there is like an emotion to it. Like they don't care what the evidence says. They know that they feel better when they only eat carnivore. And that could be true. And also it's not because necessarily you're eating carnivore. Like you could be eating carnivore plus a select variety of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and still feel that good with less risk to your health. Like you can still try to add some foods back. It's not like that you eat absolutely everything, no matter how it makes you feel, or you eat carnivore. You know, you, you go through a process of reintroduction. Didn't the carnival guy come out recently saying that he got his health checked and all that shit came back bad, so now he's eating fruits and some other plants? Yes, I have seen that there's been a shift like they, yeah, so now there's like a reintroduction of like, I know honey is one of them, but they're starting to bring back food. So like carnivore isn't even carnivore. Carnivore, <laughs> carnivore is now omnivore, Re rebranding it. <laughs> omnivore is the new diet trend, I guess. That's why it's so bad to like cling to labels because there's still people like freaking Saladino who still says there's toxins in plants. So yes that there's yeah. that um yeah so feeding on from the dieting the stress going into exercise as well yeah yeah so um so exercise is uh kind of also a recent addition to gut microbiome science especially resistance training um so i actually have uh, collaborated on what, like really the first resistance training study of its kind. And we're still in the process of writing bits about the microbiome. Um, but just looking at GI distress, it looks like there is an association between intense resistance training, uh, markers of uh, intestinal permeability and GI distress. And it could be because of the really intense intra-abdominal pressure. Uh, we see similar things in endurance sports. So if you're an endurance athlete, there's a lot of mechanical uh, stress. There's a lot of jostling when you're running for a long period of time, just like literally you're shaking things around. <laughs> um, then there's also shunting of blood away from the intestinal tract. 
There's the buildup of uh, reactive oxygen species, which is a normal part of exercise and actually an important part of exercise adaptations. So you have really all of these sort of perturbations in terms of like physical and then chemical uh, changes in pH and whatnot that have um, an impact, probably minor short term on the gut microbiome, uh, but certainly on the GI tract. And that can cause a lot of GI distress. And so like people get runner's trots. It's essentially like really bad explosive diarrhea after you go on a long run. Yes, yeah, it can be really rough. Um, and then, but on the plus side, like when we look at people who are uh, meeting physical activity recommendations, people with high levels of cardiovascular fitness, um, all the way up to athletes, they do tend to have more diverse microbiomes compared to people who are sedentary. And we're just kind of assuming that's a good thing. We don't know necessarily that's a good thing. Uh, and they have higher uh, ratios of butyrate producers. And butyrate is a short chain fatty acid that actually plays a, a role in appetite regulation, in insulin sensitivity. Uh, it's a really um, important energy source for intestinal cells. So we could say like, yeah, more butyrate is almost certainly a really good thing. And so having more butyrate producers is almost certainly a really good thing. Uh, so we go on to say that, yes, probably the changes that we see in response to that uh, or the the associations that we see between the microbiome and physical activity and cardiovascular fitness, that's probably all good things that are happening. And we don't see them as much in people who are eating a fiber deficient diet. So you really need both of those. <laughs> I remember that study. There was a study with exercise plus fiber and then mm -hmm. those that were just eating just exercising and eating a high protein diet and there weren't favorable outcomes without the added fiber so mm -hmm. exercise fiber and protein are the three things that you need for tip top shape pretty much yes yeah exactly yeah so it's like we and and if you are experiencing gi distress around exercise um, you can limit your high FODMAP foods, limit fiber uh, and fats before exercise. Give yourself about an hour, hour and a half after eating before you go do something intense. Make sure that you're staying well hydrated. Um, there's some evidence that having carbohydrates as well, I mean, not just for performance, um, but for uh, reduced GI permeability. And as long as it's dosed properly, as long as you have uh, the right concentration, you know, about six to 8% carbohydrate solution, that should be absorbed really well and can potentially prevent uh, or not make worse your GI symptoms. So there are ways to work around that. Um, and, uh, you know, and but like also know that, yes, there could de definitely be some level of damage to, to the actual tissues there. Um, but that's just kind of like, you know, that's what we do when we're doing like a really intense sport. We know that there's going to be some injury or uh, some wear and tear on the body. And that might be, you know, that's just the thing that we take on board when we're doing something like that. That's why athletes usually have coaches and they usually have guidance through these things because it's something that does need to be managed from an outside eye. Mm -hmm. Going into this, how can you be? Because I remember that I put two different statements up that got people confused. One was you can be in a calorie surplus, but a nutrient deficit. Mm -hmm. And the other one was you can be in a calorie deficit on paper, but a calorie surplus at cell level because you're not taking into effect all of the other things outside of just what you're eating because there are different shifts in say like, yeah, obviously there's the type of macro you're eating, 
the protein, the carbs, the fats. There's the fact that you're not actually metabolically healthy. So you actually, in, you have insulin resistance, which is impacting your calories in, calories out. So yeah, it looks like a calorie deficit on paper, but it's actually not a calorie deficit. You're going to need to go lower to put yourself into a calorie deficit. But talking mostly about the gut microbiome on weight regulation, because I know that this is something that you're recently really highlighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so it's a great point that we can be in a caloric excess, but like a micronutrient uh, deficiency. So if we're eating a, a really highly processed dietary pattern, it's very easy to eat. Um, it, like when we talk about energy density, we're talking about the uh, calories really per gram of food. So if you look at like a tablespoon of oil that has about 15 grams of fat, and so it'll have about 140 or so calories in, in a tablespoon of oil. It's like this much, it's not a lot. Whereas if we were to look at um, 150 calories worth of cucumber, would be a huge amount. Like you wouldn't even be able to comfortably eat that much cucumber or even, you know, looking at like 150 calories of oranges, that's probably like two or three oranges. So that's energy density. If something is really dense, really energy dense, that means that it's stored a lot of energy in a very small uh, package. So if you are eating a, a diet that is like all stack cakes, you know, and candy bars, like those things have very few micronutrients. They have very few vitamins and minerals, almost no fiber, but they're really high in refined carbohydrates and they're really high in fat. And so they're really energy dense, really small package, packs a lot of calories. That can be really helpful for a person who's like an ultra endurance athlete. If anyone wants to see something crazy, go look up uh, Dean Karnazes. He will roll up a whole pizza and eat it because he's going to be running a hundred miles, literally in one go, a hundred miles. This man needs to be able to eat cheesecake, pizza, <laughs> whatever it is, because he's burning so many calories per hour. Um, he's kind of like a, a superhero, though. He's he's a he's a physiological uh, phenomenon that yeah we don't oh. understand. Yeah, but um, but for most of us, like, you know, we uh, we probably wouldn't need to be doing that. And we just need to keep in mind, like these really energy dense foods are not going to necessarily be satiating. They aren't going to stretch our stomachs and start sending signals to the brain that we've eaten enough. And they're going to be uh, broken down and absorbed entirely. There's going to be no fiber. There's really going to be no energy lost in the stool because it's very easy for our digestive enzymes to break down all of the macronutrients in that food. And so we're going to have all of the energy, all of the calories available, but we're not going to be getting vitamins and minerals and dietary fiber. So that's where we're going to have those micronutrient deficiencies. And it's not hard to imagine that if you were eating like snack cakes and chocolate bars all the time that you would develop some nutrient, some micronutrient deficiencies, like you wouldn't be at your healthiest. I think that, um, and then, you know, when we were talking about with the microbiome as well, like the, if, if your microbiome doesn't have access to dietary fiber, that can be problematic for your health. And um, when we are, and, and that can also be in terms of like colorectal cancer risk, then then we're potentially not producing the same levels of short chain fatty acids, which we now know play a role in appetite regulation as well. So we are kind of losing out on a number of different um, facets of health. Uh, I think where people get confused with thinking of it on a cellular level, 
um, is uh, the idea like they, they might not have an understanding of like we're thinking about compartments in terms of like where we're sending these nutrients. So when we send um, glucose to a cell, we need insulin. We need that cell to be insulin sensitive. Insulin opens the the door to allow glucose into the cell. In a person who has insulin sensitivity, we actually this is part of what we studied. Um, what and what we caused in the mice by feeding them a very high fat, high refined carbohydrate diet, we caused them to become in, uh, metabolically inflexible. So that meant that their skeletal muscle was not only insulin resistant, meaning that it didn't uh, respond to insulin, it didn't allow glucose into the cell. So there was more glucose circulating and we know that high blood glucose can be harmful to your health. But these uh, skeletal muscle cells also were bad at breaking down fats. So they would only break down fatty acids partially. And when we have partially broken down fatty acids, a couple of things can happen. Some of those fatty acids can go on to uh, take part in inflammatory signaling cascades. So it can play a role in low-grade inflammation. Or we might store them as triglycerides. That's like the storage. That's what's in our adipose tissue. But the triglycerides get stored in the muscle cell. And that is unless you're an, an, an high elite endurance athlete and they're packaged right next to the mitochondria, that's also a problem. Yeah. And, and so we end up with like fatty streaks in muscle tissue. And so that's another thing that, that like, if, that helps people think about like, yes, we're in a caloric excess, but we are not sending <laughs> these uh, molecules where they're supposed to be going. And then that's causing downstream effects of having increased blood glucose, um, of having uh, triglycerides where they shouldn't be, and worsening that muscle's ability to, you know, respond to uh, and to take up glucose and use it effectively. Yeah, it, yeah. this is why it's really important really to take a long-term approach to improving your health because a healthy body is a responsive body. And it's really frustrating when you feel like you need to cut your calories so damn low because you haven't done the back work to actually get you to a healthy place in order to not have such a struggle in the first place. Mm -hmm. I, this, I, I want to emphasize the chronic high fat feeding study because that's something that's always overlooked in how people always say sugar this, sugar that, but they don't seem to realize that High fats, especially high saturated fats, can lead to insulin resistance as well, which is pretty much what you said, but I just want to highlight that fact. Yeah, I mean, really, if, if we are in a, a caloric excess, if we have an excess of um, energy and we need to, you know, some of that is going to be stored in the adipose cells, um, I guess I should back up a little bit you know, because you want to talk about like the high fat and high sugar. So sugar can be stored as fat, like sugar can be used, glucose can be used to actually form uh, fats, because even though that sounds really weird, we're just talking about moving carbon atoms around essentially. So we can move these carbon atoms around to either store them as fats or store them as glycogen. Um, but once we start getting full of, you know, we've got our glycogen stores are all full and now we are um, filling up our uh, adipocytes, two things can happen. So the adipose cells can divide, we can end up with more adipose cells and so they're smaller, but there's more of them. That doesn't seem to be quite as bad. It's when they start to get really large that they start to send out inflammatory signaling molecules 
we call those cytokines. And then those combine to receptors on other tissues like skeletal muscle. And it's that inflammation that is um, been implicated in like uh, uh, exacerbating that insulin resistance. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be high sugar or high fat, could be both, could be either one. It's really looking at that caloric excess. So like if a person's eating a carnivore or a ketogenic diet, but I've seen it a lot with people on carnivore that are like, I don't understand, I'm just eating meat, but I seem to be like gaining so much weight. And it's like, well, yeah, because like if you're eating a lot of meat, uh, especially like fatty cuts and organ meats and whatnot, then they're having a pretty high fat diet and that extra energy has to go somewhere. It's not, it can't be created or destroyed. It's going to be stored and it's going to be stored in the form of body fat. That's just where that's, that's our energy storage. Yeah. That, I thought that was a really important point because there's not really one, like you can't just demonize sugar. There, there are other things that can create the negative response as well. There's a mm -hmm. quote that I want to highlight that you said, actually, I want to emphasize one thing on that. This is where you also need to realize that what's going on in your internal health impacts brain fog, fatigue, all that mm. kind of stuff as well. Maybe you can touch on that as well as this perfect analogy. I really wanted to end the podcast with because I loved it so much. Weight loss is like a contact sport and managing oh. it with protective factors like positive body image, critical processing of media images, social support and health goals. But also talk about just quickly sum up the brain fog fatigue and all those impacts and then oh, sure. that. yes. So and I love that you brought that you brought both of those up. Um, so a lot of times, you know, people like to I shouldn't say people marketers and influencers and whatnot like to pick up on things that are that have no known real uh, explanation or cause that everyone deals with like brain fog, fatigue acne, whatever it is, and bloating, and they're like, do you have this? There must be something wrong with your gut. And it's like, is it bad gut health? Or actually, have you been trying to eat a thousand calories a day for the last 16 weeks, and you're just like really freaking tired? You know, brain fog and fatigue, are, how is your sleep and how is your energy balance? Because, or your energy intake, because like those are going to be the primary factors that are really going to drive whether you're feeling chipper and like ready to take on the day or like you need eight pots of coffee before you can walk out the door. Those are the big rocks. I have to, I have to add on something else that I like get to my ears. Mm -hmm. I need to get a blood test. I think there's something wrong with me. This, that, and the other. It's like you've been stressing out for how long you haven't slept. Your diet mm -hmm. is shit. That is why you feel the way you do. What is the, like, what are you hoping to achieve from getting a blood test? Are you actually willing to change what you're doing right now so that you can change the outcome? Or are you just getting it to say, hey, I got this, this is what's wrong? Yes. Oh, a thousand percent. And I mean, I'm all for like going to your GP and getting your physical and things like that. I definitely do that every year just to make sure because I want to make sure, you know, my cholesterol, everything's good. If I have, and I have gone through phases where I've been like, this is weird. Okay. I'm getting seven and a half, eight hours of sleep every night. I know that I'm eating adequate amounts. I'm not super hungry. I'm getting regular physical activity. I still need a nap in the middle of the day. Like what the hell is going on? And I actually did have hypothyroidism and like, you know, and there were other, there were like GI issues. And I was like, huh, wow, okay, that makes sense. But it was because I first looked at everything else. That wasn't my first thing to go like, 
oh man, I don't feel good. And it must be something wrong with me. I was like, mm, you know what? Everything else is, I've checked out, I've ticked off all these boxes. Uh, and you know, I'm going to go get a blood test. And then there have been other times when I've been like, oh man, you know, I'm not feeling super hot. Like, is there something going on? Um, I'm in my late thirties now. And so I'm like, am I experiencing a change of life? Like the, the change of life, <laughs> am I, am I perimenopause, you know, but like, the, the, the hormone tests are part of what I, and I don't mean like woo-woo hormone tests. I mean like, you know, actual, <laughs> actual valid blood tests where I can say, can we please check my FSH and LH and all those things? Um, you know, but like that checks out and I'm kind of like, you know, there might be some phases in life where for whatever reason, maybe our sleep duration is long enough, but our sleep quality isn't great, you know, and it's really hard to accurately test those things. Or maybe it's just, you know, like trying to survive as a neurodivergent person in this capitalist dystopian society that I'm in, like, that's just tiring. Sometimes things are just tiring. So it's like, we're often trying to um figure out what's wrong and then we become very susceptible to someone selling us a problem so we'll buy their solution and like really there was no problem you don't need that probiotic you know you need to like set boundaries and take more rest days just quickly oh yes probiotics. i, I uh -huh. can't leave this podcast without talking about <laughs> yeah, prescription of probiotics yeah like you go in you go into any women's facebook group right now and someone says they're bloating because they're they're all just like girls that hub together probiotic this i'm taking this probiotic i'm taking these enzymes i'm taking this powder please yes. please please yes my my elevator speech for probiotics is that probiotics are effective but they're strain specific effective and they are effective for very a limited number of things that are mostly centered on GI distress. So like antibiotic associated diarrhea, traveler's diarrhea, um, some symptoms of IBS and IBD, that's about it. Like just, if you have just general bloating, there are so many other things that could be going on with that uh, to, be, to be causing that. Like my first recommendation is not to blow 30 bucks or however much it is on some just random probiotic that you walked in and you're like, oh, this is the highest dose because the highest dose and multi-strain does not necessarily mean it's gonna be the most effective for what's going on for you. It's not specific to your actual <laughs> issue. Exactly. So that. I would love to thank you for coming on, but I want you to summarize with exactly this weight loss is a contact sport and why it's really important that we do develop these fundamentals, which as you even, as we mentioned with the brain fog, the fatigue, the issues mm -hmm. with all our health outcomes, it all comes from just looking at your foundations, building a healthy diet, which is plant focused with animal protein and yeah. getting exercise, eating, like an abundance within your day but it doesn't need to change every single day as long as you're getting what you need within that day so. absolutely yeah so um this came about this idea of weight loss as a contact sport because i started talking about weight loss uh from the perspective of acknowledging both like the diet and anti-diet camps and saying that what we're really the the, the primary um, disagreement is the effect that weight loss has on physical and psychological health. The one side says harmful and the other side says beneficial. And in reality, it is a combination of both. So weight loss is like a contact sport in that there are inherent risks that someone needs to be informed of before they can make an informed decision that 
allows them to modify or not their body uh, in a way that's respectful of their autonomy. So in other words, or another analogy, people are going to have sex. Teenagers are going to have sex. Abstinence-only sex education does not reduce teenage pregnancy or STI transmission or teenagers having sex. They don't just like stop having sex because they're told not to. They just don't know how to do it safely. Whereas if we teach someone, here's how to use condoms, here's how to have practice safe sex, there's still risk. They still might decide, I don't want to use this stuff. I'm just going to, you know, YOLO it. Fine, but at least they can make an informed decision and now they know and have access to these resources. And the same thing can be said for intentional weight loss. In some cases, people want to pursue intentional weight loss because they want to change the appearance of their body, because they want to engage in some sport that has a weight class to, uh, that has a weight to strength or power ratio or they are concerned about health and there are and the aspects of health that they're concerned about could be affected by having less body fat. Those are perfectly valid reasons to want to reduce your body fat and want to change your body weight. You also need to be able to do that knowing all the risks, that it could increase your risk of developing disordered eating, uh, that it may not improve your health marker, that um, you will probably be fatigued. It could affect your, your quality of life. And that it is almost certainly not going to actually improve your body image. What improves is, I shouldn't say what improves, what changes is how your body compares to society's ideals. And it makes you less dissatisfied with your body because you've changed how it looks. That does not mean that you've improved your body image because it's conditional. And if you were to regain the weight, you would have more body dissatisfaction. And so the body image has not changed. So I, I always stress that, that like this belief that if I look a certain way, I'm going to like myself more is uh, inaccurate at best and, and really harmful at worst. Like we need to know, okay, that's not gonna happen. So do you still want to lose that last five to 10 pounds knowing that like, you're still gonna have the same body image struggles then? I mean, or do you say like, eh, this is fine. But you know, the person who's not doing it to improve their, to ostensibly improve their body image, if they're like body image, that's totally fine, but I'm competing in a weight class sport and I know that I'm gonna be competitive in this weight class and not in that weight class and I just wanna do it for this. Or I think my body is a work of art and I wanna carve it like a big piece of marble. I'm like Michelangelo, I just wanna be shredded and I know that it's gonna be kind of risky and it's just for this uh, competition and then once I'm done with the competition, I love myself no matter what. Totally great, okay, awesome, we made an informed decision. So I really think it's important that we are transparent and clear with people about what intentional weight loss can actually do for us and what it cannot do for us. And then if we're helping a person pursue it, then yeah, we, we're like, here's your protective gear, here's your helmet, you know, we're gonna help you like, um, with uh, cognitive distortions. We're gonna ensure that we're doing this with you know, minimal to, like, well, no, I shouldn't say minimal, no food rules. You know, we're gonna do this in a very informed way and we're going to prioritize quality of life. And when I, when I sell it like that, when I sell it like that, like it's hard to, it's really hard to like promote intentional weight loss in that way because it's so nuanced and there are so many caveats. And that's why like, it's not, it is something that I can help that I help clients with, but 
you know, when you are really transparent about it, a lot of times people over time, they realize like, you know, the last, these last like five to 10, whatever vanity pounds, like it's actually not worth it. Like I would rather just be enjoying my life. And if weight loss occurs, fine. If some weight gain occurs, fine. But like overall, I have, you know, my health markers, my blood work looks good. I'm living my best life. I'm having a lot of fun. I generally eat a prudent nutrient dense diet. And then, you know, I go out to, when I go out to eat, I'm eating to the point of comfort most of the time. It's just like having this more like reasoned approach. And if you've come from a place of chronic uh, restricting and then binging and you've been feeling super out of control and your weight has been yo-yoing up and down and you've gradually been gaining over time, it's certainly possible that finding a balance like this, your weight could stabilize, it could be a little bit lower, it could be a little bit higher. But these practices that that I help clients with, these weight neutral approaches are actually associated with more weight stability and less of that opportunistic eating, less of that like feeling out of control and eating because food is there. Because you're like, I can eat this whenever I want. Like, why do I want to eat this to the point of discomfort right now? That last line was actually, <laughs> that, that just, that just threw it like, that that is what you call a good relationship with food it's knowing that you only get satisfaction to a particular point and i i really loved that we ended the conversation with that because it is really a whole whole not whole holistic approach to your health your nutrition your mindset all of that stuff because that's when you keep your results and you actually say good riddance to the whole yo-yo society and diet culture but also anti-diet culture because they're both as toxic as each other so right yes so with that where can people find you aside from at vitamin phd on instagram that's probably the best place right now i'm kind of like revamping my website but that's vitamin phd nutrition.com um, but those would be the best places to find me. And if they want to see more of my writing, I do write for Barbend and I also write for examine.com. So um, if they want to read uh, all about gut health stuff, examine.com is the place that you would read a lot of my gut health stuff. I do have some, um, quite a bit actually on Barbend as well. And Barbend is where you can find more uh, content that I've written about things like auto-regulated eating. Uh, and the realities of intuitive eating and like non-macro approaches for um, strength athletes. I love that. Thank mm -hmm. you for coming on. That was such a great chat. If you guys enjoyed this, reach out to us. If you have any questions because it did get into the weeds, just mm -hmm. reach out to us and we will be happy to answer. Shoot your scientific questions to Gab. She'll love to answer those as well. And go and find her page. She does a lot of breaking down of myths in short form reels so i hope you do enjoy that thank you